The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Let us turn together to the book of Habakkuk, chapter 1. If you're looking for Habakkuk, one way to find it is to turn to the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew and start paging back in the Old Testament, about 10 or 15 pages. It's five books back, Habakkuk, one of the minor prophets, but certainly no prophets were minor in the sense that we might think about it. They were all major prophets of their time. Minor is just a word that speaks about the length of the biblical prophecy we have from these particular prophets. We want to read Habakkuk chapter 1 into the first verse of chapter 2, and we'll look at the book in some ways as a whole, this oracle given by God to Habakkuk concerning his nation. Hear the word of God. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them to his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. 
For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watch post and station, and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. What is God doing in the world? What is God doing in our nation? What is he doing with the people of God? And how does Scripture call us to pray? How might God be calling us as a people to wait in faith with patience and perseverance for the unfolding of his sovereign purposes in the world and in our nation and in our own lives. When I was a boy, as most of you, I grew up saying the Pledge of Allegiance every day at school. And there's that one phrase that was put in early in the century, one nation under God. Is our nation a nation under God? Well, yes and no. From a biblical point of view, yes, our nation and every nation is a nation under God in that God is the great king who rules all nations. We read, we read that Heidelberg Catechism question about the fact that everything is completely ruled by God. He rules over the nations. He is king of kings. And so in that sense, certainly our nation is under God and his sovereign rule. But we might also say, no, our nation is not a nation under God in that our nation is very far from the standards of righteousness of God's word. And our nation is in great need of actively seeking God. Habakkuk's time was a time in the nation of Judah of great spiritual decline. We see this from his first complaint to the Lord. And we need to learn about God's dealings with nations. What would it look like for God to answer the prayer, God bless America? We hear that on politicians' lips a lot, and maybe we pray that. What would it look for God to truly bless our nation? Would it mean the defeat of all of our enemies? Would it mean a booming economy and low unemployment and the stock market rising to new heights? Well, the scriptural answer to this question is that to pray for God's blessing is really to pray for spiritual renewal and revival among the people of God even if such renewal would require God to awaken us with his chastening hand, as happened in Habakkuk's day. This is the principle that's unfolded for us in this book of Habakkuk. I would like to look at it with two main points and then a couple words of application to us. The first point is this. The truth of God's sovereignty should encourage us in prayer. 
God has chosen to work through his people's prayers. Even though he is the sovereign God, he is always the first cause. Yet in Scripture, we find this mysterious and blessed assurance that God chooses to work through his people's prayers. And so our prayers are always secondary to God himself, but God moves his people to prayer to accomplish his purposes. And certainly this is a great need in our time. As we look at Habakkuk's prayer, to think that we need the Spirit's help in our weakness to pray. Don't we feel our weakness in prayer, that we don't know how we ought to pray, as Romans 8 says, but the Spirit helps us in our praying. We see here in verses 2, 3, and 4 that Habakkuk, the prophet, was deeply disturbed by the state of his nation. And clearly he's been praying for some time because he says in verse 2, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? It seemed as if God was not answering. Things in the nation were going from bad to worse. You know, in the history of Judah and Israel, there were times of refreshment and revival when the people would seek the Lord, and then there were times when they would be very far from God. And it seemed that every time they would fall further away from God, it would go deeper and darker into sin. And by Habakkuk's time, it was very, very dark very corrupt. We see this from, he says in verse 3, why do you, the Lord, why do you make me see iniquity in society around him? He sees iniquity and sin. Why do you look idly at wrong? To Habakkuk, it seems like things are going wrong with the nation. There's sin on every side, and does God see this? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. How did you feel when you heard about the road rage incident in the Philadelphia area the other day with this high school graduate and somehow she and uh, somebody in a red pickup truck were contending for space on the road and suddenly she was shot and dead? What has our nation come to? We see it every day, every week, shootings and problems and opioid epidemics and all kinds of things. What did Habakkuk see? He saw violence. He saw injustice. It seemed that the victims were not getting justice. You think of the problems of our society with the terrible blight of abortion and terrible problems of domestic abuse and all kinds of human trafficking and Just crime after crime after crime. What is God doing in the world? God is doing all his holy will. He does not idly sit by. Habakkuk thinks, he uses that word twice, verse 3 and in verse 13 we'll see it again. Why do you idly do this? God is not idly sitting by. He is at work. And in fact, in Romans 11, we find that God's ways are beyond tracing out. If you try to trace out what God is doing in the world, it would be way too complex for any of us to figure it out. We do know that God's judgments are being revealed. Romans chapter 1 says the righteous judgments of God are being revealed against the sinfulness of human beings. Sometimes nations are so far advanced in rejecting God as they were in Habakkuk's day. 
And what God does is not always the same thing. Sometimes he destroys nations, as it were. Sometimes he revives and brings the gospel and brings his word to them. Sometimes he gives them over to their sins, to a slow unfolding of his judgments. And sometimes there's a mixture of all of those. And no doubt, today in our nation, we are seeing some of all of those. We do not know in the future what God will do, but like Habakkuk, you and I must pray for our nation, especially that God would revive and refresh and reform his church, that the gospel might go forth with power. For Habakkuk, God made the answer very plain. Notice in verses 5 through 11, chapter 1, we see the dramatic answer to Habakkuk's prayer, to his complaint to his God. And the answer could be summarized by this, Habakkuk Yes, I see the violence within the nation. I'm going to judge and discipline and chastise the nation with the rod of my discipline, Babylon, the Chaldeans. This was God's answer to his complaint. And it gave rise to Habakkuk's second complaint, his second prayer. And this brings us to our second truth. The truth of God's faithful love in Jesus Christ should help us to cling to God when perplexed. The truth of God's faithful love in Jesus Christ should help us to cling to God when perplexed. This truth helps us to pray. We see Habakkuk get his answer from the Lord and in verse 12 begin his second prayer. And we see in this prayer that Habakkuk is clinging to God even when he is very perplexed by this dramatic answer. God has said, I am going to judge the nation with a very sinful, proud, arrogant, destructive nation. It would be like praying for the United States and for God to have mercy because we see sin in various ways, and he would raise up another Nazi Germany to to crush us. That's the answer that God gives But Habakkuk, we see here as he responds, is standing on the foundational truths of God that were clearly given in the Old Testament and more fully revealed in the New. That is, God never abandons his covenantal people, his people who trust in him, who belong to him. That's what we see in verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. Now, many Israelites died when Babylon came. There was terrible destruction, but he's talking spiritually, eternally. We shall not die. We shall shall not die as a people completely. O Lord, you have ordained them, Babylon, as a judgment. O Lord, O rock, you have established them for reproof, you who are of pure eyes than to see evil and who cannot look at wrong. Habakkuk is acknowledging the sovereignty of God, but standing in the great favor and mercy of God to his people, which God never forsakes. It reminds me of that great stanza from the hymn, The Church is One Foundation. The church will never perish her dear Lord to defend. It goes on to talk about God keeping the church. Even at the worst times, 
God preserves a remnant. God is for his people. He never forsakes them. Even if he appoints or ordains the chastening hand of God, his mercy and love uphold us. And so Habakkuk holds before God his very perplexity. Here's the holy God, the righteous God. But look at the end of verse 13. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Do you hear what Habakkuk is saying? How can you do this, Lord? How is this in accordance with your righteousness? You are so pure you can't even look at wrong. It doesn't come before you. You cannot stand it. Any sin, you are of two pure eyes. How can this be? And the answer comes at the beginning of chapter 2. The Lord answered me, verse 2, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. So there's this great exhortation to patience. Behold, his soul is puffed up, Babylon. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. The just shall live by faith. This is a famous phrase of the Bible that's repeated a number of times. One of the watchwords of the Reformation. And essentially, God is saying in chapter 2, he goes on to describe, he will judge Babylon, the rod of his hand that he's using. He will judge Babylon eventually, but the just shall live by faith. We are always called to wait on the Lord for his answer to our perplexity, but we wait with expectation because we know nothing can separate from us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. At the end of World War II, there was much location. There was much dislocation of people groups. As the war ended, massive dislocations occurred of people migrating, trying to get back to their homelands or trying to get to the west from the east or trying to get to England or the United States and uh, just people whose lives had been traumatized and broken by war, refugees of many ethnic groups and many nationalities. And there's a description of Truman, President Truman, going to the suburbs of Berlin. And Berlin, just a city that was utterly destroyed. And with his motorcade driving uh, there to meet with Winston Churchill and Stalin to decide the fates of the nations of Europe at that point. And his motorcade driving along these streets that had been cleared of just rubble. And as they went, people just walking by with a little pack over their back usually, their heads down. They didn't even look up to see who's going by. Barely had life left within them. You just get the sense of what desolation wars bring, what kind of perplexity. And to think that in all those dislocations, There were many believers who were affected by that great war. What did they do with the question, what is God doing? 
They had to believe, they had to cling to God's faithful love to them in Jesus Christ. That is true both with nations and that is true with all of us individually. Maybe some of you are especially wrestling with some perplexing circumstance of your life and thinking, what is God doing? Have I done something wrong? What, has he lost sight of me? Is, can I say with the words of Habakkuk, Lord, why do you idly kind of sit by? Why don't you uh, rend the heavens and come down as the prophet Isaiah says? Because God is accomplishing his will in his time. The vision awaits its appointed time. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. And we know that in good time, the nation was restored to the land. After the 70 years of captivity and exile, they were restored by the providence of God in amazing ways. And it was, it was a hard time as the remnant returned to the land and rebuilt the temple and rebuilt the wall and prophets spoke to them at that time. But eventually it led to the coming of Jesus Christ in God's good time to save his people from their sins. What a remarkable, who would have ever guessed? Habakkuk saw these things, the prophets spoke these things, but they did not see the fulfillment. We live in light of the fulfillment. But we do not know what tomorrow brings for our nation or for any one of our lives. And so we must cling to the truth of God's faithful love in Jesus Christ. The righteous shall live by faith. And if you haven't trusted in Jesus Christ, if you are seeking to live your life apart from God, maybe giving lip service to him in some way or just keeping him at arm's length or refusing to submit your life to his lordship, which extends into every part of our lives, then what God calls you to is to believe in Jesus Christ, his son, through the gospel, that he would save you from your sins and give you new life. Well, let us think of a few applications from our text What do we learn from Habakkuk's complaints, his cries, and the Lord's answer to him? The first application is that we must recognize and repent of our spiritual decline. We must repent of our spiritual coldness of heart. That's true for individuals. That's true for us all as individuals when our hearts become dull and cold. But it is true for us corporately. And who but the church is called to repent for our national sins. We thank the Lord for God's blessing on our nation. And it's right to be patriotic in the sense of being thankful for so many aspects of our nation's great heritage, the constitutional freedoms of speech and religion that we enjoy, that are great gifts that have spread around the world. But it's also right to seek to humble ourselves in supplication and prayer for the great sinfulness that exists in our nation, the many wrongs that exist. Listen to this quote of a preacher speaking about the nation's sins. And he's speaking about the church especially. He says, I wonder what our fathers would have thought 40 years ago if they could have had a preview of the state of the Christian church today 
They were unhappy enough about things even then. They were already having meetings for revival and for seeking God. If they could see the church at the present time, they would not believe their eyes. They could never have imagined that spiritually the church could have sunk so low. Yet God has allowed this to happen. It has been an unexpected answer. We must hold on to the hope that he has allowed things to become worse before they finally become better. The interesting thing about that quote is it was spoken the, di- the year I was born. And that's pretty long ago, in case you don't know. That was 1953. That was Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the famous British preacher in London, speaking about the state of the church in that day and saying, how would people 40 years before that have thought? The church is not without sin. The church often needs to be revived from its coldness and prayerlessness and worldliness and complacency and self-centeredness and materialism. And often the church dies or almost dies in local expressions where the gospel is no longer being preached and proclaimed with power. And we might think to say, as we look at our nations, well, aren't most other nations much worse Aren't there some other nations that are certainly much worse? But we must remember our great privileges and our great heritage and not be surprised that God would chasten us just as he did in Habakkuk's day with nations that are more evil. But it's interesting that even Christians living in probably the most evil nations of our day, living in North Korea can thank the Lord for some aspects of their nation's history, or believers living in Iran can thank the Lord for some aspects of their heritage, not overlooking the nation's present sins, and seek the Lord. Believers in every nation are called to pray and seek the Lord in this particular way. So we must turn to the Lord in repentance. Secondly, Our great need is to look to God for his mercy in Jesus Christ. The just shall live by faith. And then there's this description in chapter 2 of Babylon eventually being judged. But look down to verse 14. Here's this promise shining in the midst of this declaration of judgment. The prophet says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This picture of the knowledge of God spreading around the world, and we know that this began to be fulfilled with the coming of Jesus Christ. And then his death and resurrection, and the gospel going out to the known world of that time, and then wave upon wave of the gospel missionaries going out so that thousands and millions upon millions of believers around the world now This has been fulfilled and is being fulfilled increasingly as the gospel goes out to the world. Our need is to look to God anew for his mercy to go out to the world through the gospel of Jesus Christ. God is on the throne. God has revealed his mercy in Jesus Christ, and we can trust in him. I love the way it says in Romans 38, 31, 32, if God is for us, 
Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? And maybe in the perplexity of your life right now, you need to come back to that sure foundation of God being for you in Jesus Christ and know that even though everything may be dark, even though you don't know what tomorrow may bring, even though you have no certainty about fundamental things about your life, that your Lord and God is on the throne and that he has loved you in Jesus Christ. And that is enough. Our great need to look to God anew in Jesus Christ. But then, a third application point is that we must pray for revival as we remember God's mighty deeds in the past. Pray for revival as we remember God's mighty past deeds. It's interesting that chapter 3 of Habakkuk is the prophet praying and recounting God's greatness in his greatest work of redemption in the Old Testament period in the Exodus. Listen to his prayer, chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In other words, he's heard this prophecy, and now he's fearful, he's concerned because he sees judgment's going to come. He's stirred up, but then he prays, in the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Habakkuk prays for God, even in this judgment, to show his mercy, to revive his work. And then he goes on in this very poetic description of God coming as a great warrior with flashes of lightning and plagues and pestilence going before him. And essentially, it's a poetic description of the Exodus when God called his people out of this land of Egypt and saved them. Habakkuk knew from history that God is a God who acts on his people's behalf. And you and I, when we're weak in faith, when we're struggling to pray, one way to encourage our faith is to recount the great acts of God in the Bible, certainly in church history, and even in your own life to remember and recount what God has done for you how he has saved you by his grace, how he has lifted you up out of the miry pit and set your feet upon a rock. And so you can trust him whatever yet might come. It was the remembrance of Habakkuk which God used to stir him up to believe that God is so able to act again in this way. Finally, we find that we must pray with patience, waiting upon the Lord in faith. We pray in repentance. We pray looking to God's mercy. We pray stirred up because of God's past deeds. But it's interesting that after chapter 3 describes God's greatness in the Exodus, we see Habakkuk turn to this picture of desolation of coming judgment. And he describes it in verse 17. He says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. 
The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. That's a picture of desolation. Our family, 20-some years ago, saw the movie Independence Day. Maybe some of you saw it. I think there was a recent sequel to it that came out. But in the movie, aliens invade the earth and uh, pretty much blow up most of the United States. And there's this vivid picture of the White House being blown up. And you find out that, you know, New Jersey's gone, New York gone, Pennsylvania, I think, was gone. And only a few holdout of American citizens in the Midwest were there. And, of course, they managed to, you know, fight back and defeat the aliens eventually. But I remember seeing that movie at the time and just thinking, what desolation that would be. Well, Habakkuk, in chapter 3, verse 17, is describing really the desolation that God brought upon the nation, and it really happened. Jerusalem was leveled. The temple was destroyed. The walls were destroyed. When the return took place, they had to rebuild it all from rubble. But it's interesting that he takes that and he describes it, and then he says in verse 18, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation God the Lord is my strength. Habakkuk is willing to patiently wait on the Lord, whatever may come. And that's where you and I need to be. Whatever may come for us individually or corporately as a church or nationally, whether it's good or ill, whether God revives the church and the nation is blessed and turned back to the Lord Lord in large ways or whether not, our trust is in the Lord Our son and daughter-in-law picked that end of Habakkuk as a wedding verse to be read at their wedding. So that was part of the sermon I preached. And I think that their intention was to say, whatever comes in our marriage, yet we will rejoice in the Lord. Our prayer is that God would revive his church. And I ask you, On this Independence Weekend, as you enjoy a picnic or the parades and the fireworks, to give yourself to prayer for our nation, especially the church, to be revived. We've experienced as a nation great revivals in the past. In the Second Great Awakening, which went over a number of period of years, in 1800s, there was a revival taking place in Lexington, Kentucky, This wasn't a man-made revival. This was something God brought. The population of Lexington was about 1,800. So it was a small town in our terms. But as the Presbyterian Church gathered for an outdoor communion service, 350 members of that church, 8,000 people attended the preaching of the Word. Do you hear what I'm saying? This is a 300-member church in the 1,700-person town 8,000 people streamed in. It was these meetings that began the camp meeting tradition in the United States where people would go and have camp meetings and hear the Word of God preached. But it originated in the Second Great Awakening. And one author talks about just the Spirit of God gripping a community. He says, "...business of all kinds was suspended." Dwelling houses were deserted, whole neighborhoods emptied, bold hunters and sober matrons, young men and maidens and little children flocked to the common center of attraction. Every difficulty was surmounted, every risk ventured to be present 
at the camp meeting. The people wanted to hear the word of God. Maybe you'll go to a firework celebration. Maybe, uh, you know, the Little Springs firework. This might be the last one with the fireworks in the park because some of the land was sold. Maybe you know about that. Been reading about that. I'm sure they'll find another place for it. But it might be the last celebration. It's going to be flocked, you know, thronged with thousands in Little Springs Park on July 4th. What would it be like if that was the kind of response to the preaching of the Word of God? Pray that God would revive his church, that he would turn his people to pray in humble dependence upon him, that we might pray, God, bless America in the true sense of that word. In the midst of the years, revive, O Lord. In the midst of the years, make it known in wrath, remember mercy. May that be the prayer on our lips to the glory of God through Jesus Christ. Amen. Father, we come to you as a people who are very needy. We so easily are distracted by the many good things of our lives, and we know these are good gifts from you. We pray that you would give us a seriousness to seek you, young and old alike. O Lord, make us people of prayer. And hear, O answer, and answer, O Lord, that Jesus Christ's name might be lifted up, that his gospel might go forth, and that the face of our very nation might be transformed by a new awakening of your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.